I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Shani Gonzalez, Managing Director of Warner Chapel Music UK and Head of International A&R. We talk to her about her start at BMI, what it was like working at Def Jam, industry figures that have inspired her, and what it's like to start afresh in a new country. I feel like if I didn't grow up in New York with and have the vantage point that I had there, I don't know that I would be in music and certainly not living in London and, and having the kind of international role that I have at Warner Chapel. However, as with all our guests, we like to ask why they chose the music industry. Here's what Shani had to say when we asked her. I don't really know why, actually. I grew up in New York. It was a time when it was all about, like, Puffy and Bad Boy and Five Magazine and Mary J. Blige. It was like a real moment in New York. And I had a cousin that I really looked up to. She worked at Vibe Magazine and was telling me about all the people that were coming into her office and all of the cool things she was experiencing. And I remember saying, like, just being really amazed and I think I was like, not I think, I was definitely like a big Jodeci fan. She had met them and she was telling me about all the people that were around them. And it had never occurred to me before that other than the artists, which already had fascinated me, there was like this whole scene of people that were kind of the directors behind the scenes. And I loved that idea. And coincidentally, I had no talent. So I couldn't sing. I couldn't play an instrument. <laughs> I couldn't do anything like that. So I guess that's why the music business, because I would have failed miserably if I wanted to be creative. Yeah, but listen, I always think that it does people a great disservice when they say they have no talent because there's a plethora of variant talents that are needed to make this business of music run, right? That's why it's been wonderful to talk to you and a number of the other guests to show how the music business is actually formulated, what the people are, the characters, the, the personalities behind it, but also the jobs that have to come together to kind of make that person up front the star that, that, that everyone sees. I think you may be our first US guest. So I always like to talk and find out about people's backgrounds. We've heard a little bit about you and the, your cousin who worked at Vibe. What was the music that was kind of really turning you on? Listen, I, I can't say enough about, I might be the proudest New Yorker you've ever met. <laughs> New York is like, especially at the time when I was growing up in New York, it was, I am first generation American. Both of my parents mm -hmm. are West Indian. I had Honestly, like looking back, probably the most charmed childhood ever. Like I was so proud. You grew up, I grew up in a very proud household of my mother, who is Jamaican, and my father, who's Trinidadian. They were divorced by the, by the time I could remember. But people that were intensely proud of their culture and their island and, and the music and everything that came with it. And all of my friends were also, most of my friends, I would say, were first-generation American, too, of Caribbean parents as well. And we all had that culture at home that was instilled in us. But then you left your house, and New York is like, 
important for Black music. New York is a place of a lot of culture. So outside of the Caribbean culture, there's obviously lots of Spanish and Latino people and and the music that came with that. Some African, not maybe right there, the way I've learned about African culture being in London. I don't think it was as prevalent for me in New York, but just all of all of the different ethnicities that were there and how that came together in the music was amazing. It was insane. And what I will say about London is I think the way that the cultures merge together in the music is really interesting to listen to. It's not quite the same in New York. It's far more segmented than my experience in the two years that I've lived here. But I just I feel um, I feel like if I didn't grow up in New York with and have the van- the vantage point that I had there, I don't know that I would be in music and certainly not living in London and and having the kind of international role that I have at Warner Chapel. That's really interesting to hear you talk having having had the experience of being here for a minute that kind of difference because as a Londoner born and bred, you know, that kind of musical melting pot and cultural melting pot of all the musical styles kind of like, you know, coming together and clashing and colliding obviously gives off, a, a, you know, its own style. And you know, I'm sure doing what you do, you can listen to something and trace that musical roots and its heritage. You can see where it's come from. And I'm surprised that in some sense that New York hasn't culturally clashed as much as that. I think it comes together in a different way in New York. But in London, it's just, it is really interesting to listen and hear so many different cultures come together. And that it didn't happen in that way. I think where New York, New York for me, and at the time that I was there, felt very formidable in the Black culture, Black music, right. sort of the way that it began to evolve. They both pushed culture forward, I think, just in different ways. Growing up in New York, going to school, what was the ambition? Was it, once you'd seen your cousin in the music business and working for her, was it always to try and get a career in the music business or were mum and dad driving you into another area? My parents are West Indian. They didn't understand what the hell I meant. Actually, for a long time, I wanted to be a writer, not a, a songwriter. Like, I loved reading. I loved books. I loved authors. That was something that I was initially, when I went to university, um, I initially went for that. And I remember sitting in like my first creative writing class and everyone was snapping together instead of clapping and crying on each other's shoulders. And I was like, no, nah, this ain't for me. And somewhere it kind of came together. I went to Temple in Philadelphia. Right. Um, but I happened like I got lucky again because I was go- I was go- in school in Philly right when like Neo Soul was um, happening and you know, Flowetry, I think at that point had moved to Philadelphia from London, working on their debut album and Larry Gold and James Poyser and just some of the like huge people that were like the architects of that scene. So I got lucky again. I also got to intern under a woman named Deanna Williams. And Deanna is the mother of Black music, they say. So June being Black Music Month, she is the person that co-founded the month. Having her be such a really huge influence. I mean, she taught me so much, but I don't think I realized at that time for her as a Black woman, all the things that she had done. She was a very prominent radio announcer and 
then uh, it had she was no longer doing that. She became a media coach and then she had done the June being black music thing. Incredible. Just, and she really took me under her wing and, and I got very close to her and her family and it was great. And it was very funny because I came obviously from New York and West Indian and I would hear songs and her ex-husband is Kenny Gamble, obviously Gamble and Huff, which is a catalog that we're proud to have here at Warner Chapel. But they were huge, right? Uh, they are huge. They are legends. And me growing up the way I did, I would hear songs and be like, what's that? And they're like, it's the OJs. And my friends there were just like, how the hell have you never heard some of these songs? But I'm like, my parents listened to Sparrow and Bob Marley and Dennis Brown. And like, I remember hearing records in the environments that Deanna was putting me in and right. even with my new friends at school <laughs> being like, is that Sanchez? And they're like, no, I'm like, no, Sanchez. Wait, did Luther Vandross cover a Sanchez song? And they're like, what are what? you talking about? What the hell? I'm like calling my mother and being devastated. Like, wait a minute. My whole childhood's been alive. It's upside down. Yeah, it's upside down. And my friend's like, you're not from, I'm like, I'm vaguely familiar with Luther Vandross, but do you know who Barris is? Like, are you insane? And then I went back to New York and my first job was at BMI, similar to PRS for America. So how did you get your break there? How did you get your first break at BMI? I applied for it as an assistant and I got it. And it was totally the opposite of everything I thought the music business was supposed to be. It was a place where there was a dress code and people got to work at like 9 a.m. And I thought we were all going to be like listening to music and like... Hanging out and dancing. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm still grateful I had that experience. Randomly, it was in the international department. It was nothing creative about it. I was the assistant to the woman that ran international. And I got to learn all of the societies around the world. And that's like my trivia fact that nobody cares about. How was that time at BMI for you, apart from learning all the collection societies, what else did you take from it? Did you feel at that point, once you got in there and kind of began to feel you know, the kind of movement of the business, that it was something that you really wanted to be a part of going forward? I think I left there a bit confused. Um, I maybe I think I was there maybe about a year, met great people and did have a good time being there, but I was a bit confused and I think as you are in your 20s, or as you should be, I think, in your 20s. Yeah. And so I left there and my father was kind of like, are you done with the foolishness now? And I was like, I think so. I don't think so. I don't know. And probably did all the things that piss your parents off when you're in your 20s. And they really just wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer. I then got a job working for Warner Chapel, funny enough. Well, I was going to say, this is this is like the great return story, right? Yeah, so I ended up at Warner Chapel in New York. I had the most unconventional interview with Chris Hicks, who at the time was there. He had ran a very successful joint venture at Warner Chapel, and they brought him in to kind of like revitalize the urban department that had been a bit, I don't want to say is ignored, maybe abandoned for a bit, the right word. I think they hadn't had anyone in the role. And he was 
he was everything I thought the music business was when I, I finally was like, oh my God. And I remember thinking to myself when I, I was going to do the role, like, oh, he's an A&R. That's the one thing I don't want to do in the music business. It's, it's the one thing I don't want. He was like very formidable. He was really smart and a bit of a renegade. He had never worked at a company before. He had always been a self-starter and built his own stuff and successful manager. And he said all the wrong things in the interview, which made it all right for me. You know, just crazy, non-traditional. Yeah. He didn't sit down yeah. and ask me a bunch of weird interview questions. It just felt natural. And I, I remember um, I started with him um, shortly thereafter. And he was probably one of the first people at that time. Yeah, I think it was pretty new to everyone. But he had a role at Warner Chapel and he had a role on the recording side as well. So I got to go in and be his assistant and kind of hit the ground running on both sides. Uh, yeah, and it was it was crazy. It was exhausting and it was exhilarating was that the point where you kind of thought right i've I've found my niche i now know what i want to do a and r is the thing for me or were you still searching for that thing chris was very like sink or swim in a good way so like he put you in all the scenarios he was incredibly busy and i lived in new york and he commuted to new york from atlanta sometimes it was every week more often than not, it was maybe every other week, but we spoke 50 times a day. But it was a bit terrifying to be sitting in the office and my boss was like not there and he would like throw right. me into crazy scenarios like go down to Sony Studios, that new kid that everybody likes and get him to do give you the three songs for some artists and you'd get to the studio and it'd be like Neo and Stargate. And then you have to do with Danny and Tim as well. Exactly, exactly. And try to say all the right things, but yeah. you know you're like 22 and so you're right. naturally like a bit of a fuck up. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, listen. This is what it's about. This is the realness that we want. You know what? You know that moment where you're trying to sound so intelligent so you just sound like an absolute moron? <laughs> like I had a lot of those. You know, I think it's really important because all of us at some point have been through those moments where you're where you're reaching, you want to do the right thing and you want to be that person. And without those moments, none of us will be where we are now. None of us will be doing what, what we do now. Do you still think that you learn something new every day that you're in the business? Oh my God. And, you know, especially like, I wish that everyone could have the experience that I have every day as an American in London and just that sensation of constant, constantly being a fish out of water. And you get, it's like an adventure. It's like, it's, it's absolutely an adventure. And how many times I've sat in meetings and totally fucked it up because I'm American and I might not understand, I don't know, the tone or what's happening or how many times I don't get a reference or just like the wrong things you said. Just, you know, it it makes for um, an interesting life. And your time over at Epic doing what you were doing, what being an A&R, when you look back on that, what were the additional tools it gave you to do what you do now? What did you learn? When I started with Chris, like one of the first things 
he would tell me, he would always say this, do you want them to yell at you or do you want me to yell at you? I can look back now and just see how quickly, I don't think confident is quite the word, although maybe I pretended confidence a lot more often than I felt it, but just to get things done and the the stubbornness and drive that it takes. And every day I would, I still hear that voice in my head going, do you want them to yell at you or do you want me to yell at you? And I'm like, fuck, I'll take them. <laughs> like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and get what I need to get done. So that wasn't a role that was natural to me when I started with Chris. And it is something that I've had to learn. When you look at the business, I mean, obviously, it's you've had two perspectives to, to kind of measure against. You know, obviously, one in the US, one here. And it's always interesting to listen to some of the great women that we've had on the podcast talking about their experiences in the music business in the UK. When you think back to your early start back at home, back in the US, how much did the business reflect you as a person of colour and in gender? I've still not figured out a a graceful or short way to answer that question. Um, I was very lucky, you know, and I like to acknowledge that, that I, growing up in America, I had a lot of, of Black heroes. I don't know if that's the right way to put that. From early as a child, my parents were incredibly intentional about instilling pride and making sure that I understood where I came from and who I was and that nobody else told me that story. That was a story that mm-hmm. they started. And um, and when I got into this business, you know, the first person that uh, that really mentored me and nurtured me was a Black woman when I was mm-hmm. at Temple. Um, and then the next person that I meet is Chris Hicks. And he was a Black man who nurtured and mentored also, you know, and he did, he did it in many ways, nicely and firmly, you know, I think that was great. And then he brought me with him when he eventually left the entire Warner Music Group and we went um, L.A. Reed at Def Jam. We went to, and, and L.A. was also an incredible mentor and getting to be just in the proximity of a man who was an insane insanely successful um, executive and just what he had done in the music business as a Black man far before me and Chris was like, I mean, every day you felt like you were in school, whether it was, you know, working for Chris or working for L.A. They were both amazing at keeping me, Chris, like kept me in the room amongst the best of the best and never sidelined me in that way. And L.A., I can't even begin to tell you what Def Jam was like when I got there. And, you know, the the A&R team was amazing from DJ Khaled to KP, who I don't know Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with KP, but he is a legendary A&R person. He's also a songwriter and he manages Pharrell and he's a DJ. Um, Then we had Boo, who was Probably, you know, he's Akon's brother. He just signed Central C. Karen Kwok, who L.A. also Mm -hmm. had, who signed The Dream. And she's actually back in, she's in the Warner family now, Warner Records. But she A&R'd Rihanna too. Like, it was just, I can't even Mm -hmm. begin to explain to you what was happening in that building. And just the amount of diverse talent that L.A. had assembled. So, I don't know, like, I was incredibly lucky as a, as a woman and as a Black woman and a Black person, I always 
had insane examples around me where I was just going like, I mean, why am I here? Like, how do you even measure up to these people that I had spent so many years just like reading about and looking up to? And now like, oh, fuck, like, you know my name and like we're talking and you just text me and that's crazy. So, yeah, I. I don't, I don't know if I answered your question, but... No, listen, you've answered it more than adequately and eloquently and, and praised those people that deserve to be praised. How forthcoming were they in terms of sharing knowledge? I mean, obviously you say that Chris brought you in, obviously and making you feel an equal and giving you that space to kind of learn and be in the room is really important. Everybody is forthcoming in different ways, you know? Um, Chris... I was always very comfortable to ask a direct question to. Chris was forthcoming in the sense that he put me into space and you learn by watching him. He was really good at what he did and you learned by having the front seat to watch. And then LA was like, LA's a celebrity. He's LA Reed. And so maybe in the beginning, I didn't start with him as his assistant and grow from there. So it took a minute LA was forthcoming with, um, I got to be around and I got to meet Clarence Avon and Spike Lee. And I mean, the list just goes on and on. So I think everyone was forthcoming. I think that there is, there is a way to sit quietly and listen intently and, um, know when to chime in. It's like an art, right? So like, you know, when to chime in and you know, when to just go like, let me get real small. And I hope they don't even realize I'm in this room. <laughs> so what made you make the change? Obviously, you're there with Chris. Things are going well. What happens next? I think we had been at Warner about five years. Chris had, like, it, it was an insane time at Warner Chapel. Like, I remember the first year that I started with him. We basically inherited a company that, like, there had been no love on the urban side. And Chris like came in and renewed some really key deals and signed some really key deals. And he was obviously living in Atlanta. So he was close to all the action at that time. And he managed Brian Michael Cox, who he had through his noontime JV. So he worked closely with him. And Brian Michael Cox was such a magnet for other things. And then Chris was an insane deal maker and things just started happening really quickly. And I think within like three years, we were like publisher of the year at one of, I think it was ASCAP. So it was just happening fast. And, and we were, we moved from Warner records to Atlantic. So we were Warner chapel and Atlantic and that it just, it was an amazing time. And, and, and I, got to be a part of a lot of success with Chris. Yeah, I think it was just kind of time. He wanted to go onto the record side in a more full-time capacity. And um, he brought me with him. And that's when I got to go to Def Jam. And it was in, it was a really cool thing to come in. I was like a very junior A&R person that LA probably was like, oh, this is, this is the person you brought. Like, whatever. Who is she? <laughs> like, whatever. Um just sit quiet and don't say much and we'll let you stay. I kind of, I mean, nobody said that, but I definitely felt like I had gotten to the cool kids club at Def Jam. And they gave me like, um, like a very early brand new project to Chris and I. There's a whole probably thing that I jumped over, 
Chris was also managing Usher. Usher yeah. had signed an artist that LA ended up bringing over. And so when we got over to Def Jam, quite naturally, they gave Chris this artist. And this artist ended up being something that was like, okay, Shani, like you're a junior A&R person, you kind of help. And I was Justin Bieber. So like, I mean, the stars aligned again. I don't know. I love the way you just threw that out there. Just kind of like, not quite the mic drop moment, but almost the mic drop moment. Just kind of like, just throw it in there, just kind of moved on really quickly. (laughs) No, but it was like, it was pretty funny because I like desperately believed in Justin and it was a weird time in the business. It was like a time when I think people had kind of written off kids as not working. So definitely wasn't the later days of when you had all like the One Directions and the like, the things that yeah. played to a younger audience. Scooter was just super clever with how he kind of got, he created this, I mean, when I tell you a groundswell, I don't even know if there's a word for what Scooter created, because we're all adults. So maybe you we didn't realize how fast this was growing, but um, there was like a, a in-store signing at the mall. And this will be lost on um, English people, but there's this mall in New York, Roosevelt Field. And it's a huge mall. And it was like this riot basically happened at the mall. And that's when we realized like, oh shit, like Justin is fucking huge. Like, wait a minute. And that was very early on. So, yeah, I got to work on the first five and a half Justin albums. Give us the units. Give us the, give us the numbers around Justin about at that time. Like, I can't even, I don't even know. Like, it, it took, I don't even, it's just staggering. Like, there was, this was the Bieber fever, the height of Bieber fever. I remember being at Madison Square Garden and all the men's rooms had been like plastered over to be ladies rooms because that's how many screaming (laughs) girls. As I was walking in and we all had our credentials to be there, they're like, take these right now. They were like AirPods to put in. The pitch at which a 10 year old can scream is unlike anything you've ever heard. Getting to have a front seat to something like that, you go okay, this is what the fuck success is. This is what it looks like. Um, But it was hard in the time to even stop. And that was like one of the rare moments where, I mean, you had to really stop and be like, wow, like this is is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it was like being caught up in that. It's, It's, I mean, you talk about it, you call it a wave. It's more like a, a tsunami of kind of energy and excitement and kind of, you know, work and the, just the constant search to kind of find the next, the next big song and, you know, and the thing that's going to keep the wave and keep the, keep the train on tracks and keep it moving. I mean, an incredible spe- experience for you and a once-in-a-lifetime experience, which presumably allows you to kind of make the next jump in your career. Yeah, so LA ended up leaving um, to go to Epic. I was fortunate. I got to um, come with him, sort of. It was a weird way that I ended up at Epic. But here I was. I got to, I went to Epic. And it was right in the middle of him doing uh, X Factor. It was an interesting moment, to say the least. And it was much different than being, you know, coming from where we had come from, where there was Rihanna and Justin Bieber and Kanye and Jay-Z and the killers. And I mean, it just, I can't, it goes on and on and on and Jeezy and Rick Ross and just everybody. It was like the who's who, but we were now at Epic and Epic was a complete 
um, start over. Michael Jackson used to be here and it was a challenge. I think it was definitely a challenge when you come from that high of a place yeah. to go, but it's LA Reed and right. He's going to figure it out. So I got, to, I was lucky because I got to see him in that beginning. Like in, he was in a start over, like, don't worry, wait till you see what I'm going to do here. And, you know, so he said, so it was done. It kind of shaped for me. That's always now how I approach stuff. I, I like to go in where people have written off. And I'm not saying anybody had written Epic off. That's not what I mean. But I just mean how courageous of, of him to, you know, stop this and now go over here and just be like, fuck it. We're, we're going to rebuild and bring this back to the label like that it once was. Of course, Sade was there too. Love Sade. I think there are a lot of people that that like the idea of almost running into the burning building while people are running out. Run, run out. I mean, it, you know, it's it's the most exciting exciting time. If you, if you can go in, put the fire out, and rebuild the house, I think there's a great deal more satisfaction of what what you've achieved. And I'm sure LA, having done that, you know, gone through Def Jam and got and then kind of re- literally gutting Epic and rebuilding it from the inside out was an incredible experience for you to see as well. I'm sure would have helped shape you and your role now as, as head of a company. Absolutely. And, and it was, it was an interesting time as well because LA was far more, um, there was far more direct contact for me at that point. At Def Jam, he was still like, Please don't look at me. Please don't pick me. Please don't talk to me. You're L.A. Reed. I'm terrified. And I think at Epic, I got to spend more time with him, um, just hearing more of his stories and and just going like his advice and just the, the, the crazy shit he would say and getting to be there. It was cool. I signed while I was there. I remember um, calling him and being like, like, just gobsmacked in LA like I need you to meet this person and LA is like hard he's hardcore and and it's a good thing and what I mean is like he wants you to challenge him he doesn't want people that just tell him yes he wants to be challenged and he wants you to have a strong opinion it was an interesting time and I think he helped me hone that um being strong in an opinion and having a point of view was very important to him um, but I remember calling him one day and just being like, oh, fuck, like I just met this guy and he's incredible. And, da, 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 da. and he's like, fucking slow down. And, you know, what do you want to do here? And he allowed me to bring that artist in. And, and it was a really hard thing to sign. And it was Travis Scott. So that was like a really cool moment. And like it was a very cool moment because um, it was super early and I was probably known at that point as the Justin Bieber girl. I love that LA, like he saw it immediately. LA was like, he's a fucking star. Go sign him. That's an, another incredible learning experience from you. When you walk away and that's in your rear view mirror and you go into your next challenge, what are you taking with you from that experience that's going to help you in the next phase of your journey as an executive in the music business? I think after that, I had a very strong point of view and felt much more confident in my taste. Um, Neither of them were easy, instant, clear-cut winners for everyone. You know, I think there were quite a few people that didn't get Justin Bieber and was just like, what the fuck? 
Um, and there were quite a few people that in the early days of Travis, you see, the thing with Travis was Travis was always Travis. That was for some people like they didn't understand that. Like, wait a minute. Like, what is he? Who has he done? And what's ha- like, what? I don't know that I get it. And Travis was really diverse in his taste and his understanding of music. And he he was just very eclectic and um, it wasn't easy to get. But I think that because I'd been around Chris and because I'd been around L.A. and just some of the people that had mentored me, you like one of the things L.A. used to always he would always tell stories about, you know, the early days of Outkast or the early days of TLC or Usher or Pink or just like run down the list. And a lot of times the biggest artists are the ones that make people a bit uncomfortable and that people can't quite put in a box and explain, you know, very easily. So to me, having, you know, having had the opportunity to work with Justin and Travis, I just started to realize, like, fuck what everyone thinks. Like, from the beginning, I got it, I understood it, and it made me excited. And luckily, I was around people that understood that too. But it just made me very resolved in my taste, for better or for worse. So let's talk about the next iteration of your journey. And then I really want to get into talking about you as a black woman in the business. Epic's over and you're moving on yet again. Yeah, I move on. And at the, I started to do a bit of consulting for Craig Kalman at Atlantic. I was just trying to find my feet. Now that I look back, I realized I was probably like really just fucking brain tired. It had been an insane few years you know, we're not well-adjusted like English people that take holidays and understand <laughs> the importance of, like, mental health. You're just like a shell of a human, tired and frazzled. So anyway, I was probably all of those things. And I was really sick of, um, at that particular point, I was like, I just felt like, not entitled isn't the word, but exhausted. I just felt like I was sick of explaining constantly what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it and why I thought it was so great and why this person was going to be big. And um, I don't I don't mean that from an arrogant point of view. I just mean that from like labels were starting to get a lot less creative at that moment. It was around a time right before streaming when things started to constrict a bit and everyone was unsure. So it was like the early days of like data analysis and like, how do you make things, you know, find things off of Spotify and, you know, all of that kind of, Oh, what's Spotify going to be? I looked at this on YouTube, like things like that. And that was not at that point. I was like, I don't get it. I don't want to fucking get it get me out of here. And so I left and I was like, maybe I don't want to be in the music business anymore. I was very confused in that moment. And I was doing a bit of stuff for Atlantic and for Craig Kalman. KP was there. Kind of was like, just come over here and do some stuff here with me. And I appreciate that because KP, he's like somebody who's incredibly important to me and a mentor for sure. And he knew that I was just like, I probably just needed some hugs and to work at a different pace, you know? Um, And so he brought me in on some stuff he was doing at Atlantic. And not too far after that, I got a call to go to this like 
crazy reformed company and everybody was like, nah, you shouldn't do it. It's not cool. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Atlantic was offering me a full-time job. And I was like, and everybody, they this crazy thing was not paying as much as Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, you shouldn't do it. And I was like, that's why I'm going to do it. And it was um, another publishing company. It was BMG, reformed after selling the last company to Sony. Then they had re- they reformed maybe three years prior to me joining or four years prior. And it was like, hey, like, come over here and we're well-funded. It was Zach Katz. That he was my, he brought me in. Oh, yeah. And also, like, I don't know, like, Adrian, honestly, like, God takes care of children and fools. That is my philosophy. And I'm not sure whether I'm the child or the fool or a bit of both, but I've just been insanely lucky and I'm super grateful for that. Zach was also an entrepreneur who had done extremely well managing J.R. Rodham and um, Sean Kingston and Jason Derulo and definitely things that were not my like necessarily straightforward, like taste, but mm. wildly successful. And you res- you like work in this business long enough. You learn to, res- if you're smart, you learn to respect success. That shit is not easy to do. And Zach was so clever. And, you know, I've, I've told him this before and he always acts like he's surprised, but I went to BMG because of Zach and because he was so smart that I'm like, I've had the opportunity to work for, why not just keep working for smart people? That seems to be taking me somewhere. And he gave me all the latitude in the world. He trusted me implicitly and let me do some crazy shit that panned out. And we just went on an amazing run. And I was at BMG for about uh, five and a half years, I think it was. And I grew from, he was at the time head of A&R, then he grew to head of publishing, and then he was running North America. And at that time, he promoted me and Andrew Gould, who would be, quickly became my work husband. He promoted us to run the A&R team. And then eventually, I was running, co-heading the A&R team with Andrew, and also um, co-heading the A&R team in the UK as well. So that was sort of how I got started coming to London so frequently. Your career is remarkable, remarkable in its breadth, in its depth, and the twists and turns along along the way. And you know, there's still one more major twist, which will bring our story up to date. But I wanted to talk about you as a black woman in the business, what that means to you, and but also what that looks like to you now that you're in the UK and how that compares to being back at home or in the US. We see some incredibly powerful women of colour that have done extraordinary things in in the US. We're beginning to see that here in the UK. So what what are your initial impressions now that you're kind of sitting in the big chair here? Wow. Um, I was a bit sad when I came here, if I'm being really honest. I quickly understood um, just in in initial meetings that I had and the resistance that I I got. As much as I might have, and you know, you have your other Black friends that you guys have come up together and it's easy to commiserate with them about 
I was calling them going like, you guys have no fucking idea how lucky we were there. To be fair, there were so many things. I was moving here during COVID. Um, I'm a woman. I'm Black. I'm American. So I don't know which one of those things was offensive. It's almost like English isn't even the same. Like it's not even English isn't in common from America to um, to the UK. So there was a lot of learning lessons, but perhaps the one that was for me the hardest to swallow was how quick people wanted to sideline me or think that. Uh, oh, you know, I heard a lot of buzzwords. I heard a lot of crazy things like, "Oh, the new Warner Chapel is uh, trendy." which I understood what that meant. It meant urban. It meant I'm Black. Um, Oh, I see you guys are, you know, really gotten very urban here. And I'm like, what what does that mean? Like, you know, so I I think um, the way racism happens here is just a bit, it's very different, not a bit. It's very different. But I always say when people ask me to compare, I'm like, I don't know. It's like, do you want to get shot or do you want to get stabbed? Like you're going to die both ways. Which do you, I don't know, which is less painful. It fucking sucks. However it happens and it shouldn't happen. And your preference is probably not to die. So you don't want either. Right. Um, But I think it took a minute to understand the tone of it here. It was for me disheartening about how new to the conversation we are or how new it feels here. Um, yeah. Is that the right way to say it? It's your way of saying it. And so it's the right way of saying it because it's it's your experience. And I think it's not for me to kind of say, well, that's right or wrong. That's how you see it. I still struggle with it because there's still things that are just really hard to put your finger on and quite explain. So I can only speak to just feeling like I had to prove myself over and over again in rooms that I shouldn't have had to. I'm not saying that that didn't happen in the U.S. It just happened in a far different way. Um, So, yeah, it was, you know, definitely moments that uh, it's also an interesting thing because I work for Guy, who's a legend here. You know, you're trying to fill really huge shoes and you have a boss with that did your job in the most like legendary way at a really high, you know, um, like big. He did it big and he did it for a long time. He asked me to do this job in April of 2020. And I was skeptical then. I thought that he had totally lost his mind. Um, Why the hell did he think that I could do such like an adult job? And he, he was amazing at like showing me the path and being very clear that his intention was for me to have this job and that I would do well. And he was great at that. And then George Floyd happened. And I remember calling him being like, I don't want to have to overstate the obvious here, but I'm black and I've never seen somebody in that role in the UK. And he said, you're going to have some issues. I'm not going to lie, but all I can do is support you and tell you that I have your back and I believe in my decision 110%. And However, you need me to say that, speak that, but I will not tolerate anybody questioning who I have in the role. So he was, he said and did, I think, all the right things. And he has continued to say and do and to constantly reaffirm his belief in me and the decision to have me here. He's been incredibly gracious with how he's um, allowed me to evolve into the 
into the job. And sometimes I share my experiences and he's always been there to listen and be outraged, sometimes more than me. Sometimes I don't want to tell him anything. I don't want to be like, I had to deal with such and such, but they don't want to deal with me because I think it's because of this reason. Sometimes I have to not tell him because he's like, wants to get in there and be like, how dare you and fuck that person. And like, um, no, 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 I got it. So two years down the line, yeah, almost three years down the line now. I mean, how does that image, that reflection look in terms of what those conversations were like when you first started to to where you are now and the reactions you get when you're in the same room with some of those same people? I still, I mean, it's always interesting. Like my personal favorite is when someone will call me and go like, yeah, like I have, it's totally, it's not rap though. So who should I talk to? I mean, that still happens, but I'm far more, again, I think you get, this is a, a role that daily you learn a little bit more and daily you get to come to work on, okay, I know a little bit more than I knew yesterday. And that um, allows you to have some confidence, I think. And have you shared that? I mean, I say there's some incredible women that are coming up through a business. Obviously, Amber's there with you, the wonderful Amber Davis, an incredible guest on the pod and and her story and her journey equally has been, you know, difficult, but one that she's navigated with incredible skill and grace and poise as all of our women in the business have. Are you able to kind of go and share? I mean, are there people you can unburden with? Have you built a network? It doesn't work unless you have that. I always say, you know, there's an African saying, it takes a village to raise a child. I think it takes a village to raise a career and to sustain a career. And it's really important that you have those people. So I have my like, board of directors, they know who they are because I call them constantly. And I'm like, let me tell you what the fuck? Or the moments where you're just like, I can't do this. Why am I here? And those people that will go, let me remind you why you're here and, and making sure that we do that for each other. And I'm lucky because I have that both here in the UK and in America. And so, yeah, it's great. I'm like, I'm like so grateful. First, I'm really incredibly grateful because I came here in January of 21 and it was COVID and everybody was in their house and people went above and beyond for me and have continued to show me that like not only are they friends, but they're family. The people that I have in London mean so much to me because they have made effort to like, keep me sane and whole and not homesick or just giving me so much just latitude to be whoever I want to be. And so I, I'm always just, yeah, I can't say enough about that. I love, I really do love to say it is a very close second to New York in my heart. I'm glad you said that. Do you think now you've had some time here and you've had, you, you say you've been here since Jan, Jan of 21. When you kind of sit and you reflect, do you think you would have been able to have the level of, of success that you've had to date if you'd have been working, if your career had started in the UK, seeing what you've seen? What you've seen? And it'd be great to hear your reasons behind it either way. I think that, I get to be here in a period of where diversity is a hot topic, DEI, and there's a lot of incredible movements of Black executives from Glenn at, and, at RCA and Ricky running since 93 and Alec and Alex over at Def Jam. And I mean, the list goes on in Austin at Warner and I can name names. 
that's an important environment. And I'm glad that I get to be here while that's happening. I don't want to speak on times that I wasn't here, but it, it seems like that's very new here. Or it seems like it's happened in cycles. I can't even, I, the fact that I haven't even said Jackie. Jackie has been like an insane mentor. Everybody I know in London, I know at some point, whether it's a second or first connection from Jackie. But if I, I met everybody, all the first connection people through Jackie, and then those people have, so Jackie is at the nucleus of everything. But what I was going to say is, you know, I get to hear some of the history from Jackie um, about the music business here and the things that I maybe wasn't. She's always the person that when I don't when I don't get something, I'll call her and she brings me up to speed very quickly, right? And I don't know, like, you know, Jackie is one of a kind. And I've been so lucky that in my career and growing up in the U.S., I got to have a few people of color that were able to nurture and mentor and guide in a very specific way that needs to be done. Um, it's difficult and there are challenges that you face every single day, right? When you're working mm. while Black, you know, working yeah. while Black is like drinking and driving. It can be a dangerous combination. You know, having these people that had done it before me and had the confidence and the fortitude to keep going and be really successful in the face of people who told them they could not be, um, was for me, like, it was important. It was, it was life-changing. And I think you get to be who you see, right, and who you learn from. And I got to be and see all of these people and have such amazing uh, relationships with them that I still have. I don't know that that was the environment that was, that was accessible here if I'm being totally honest. I don't want anybody to hate me. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm even saying the right thing. <laughs> now, listen you're, listen, you're saying what you see. What you say is really interesting because you are sitting somewhere as you know, somebody who's unique in, in, in a field. So when you kind of, again, walk out in the morning, when you kind of open the door to your office, sit down, do you feel that there's a pressure on you as a role model, as someone who people are looking to? I'm always so flabbergasted, so surprised, so like, oh my God. And like, what are you talking about when people like want to talk to me or think that I have um, something of intelligence or <laughs> something to impart, some sort of wisdom to impart to them? That is still a, uh, something that makes me like, oh my God. But also, <laughs> also like, particularly because I understand the journey as a, a woman of as a woman, as a woman of color, I'm always down to speak to any and everybody. And, and as much as I can give back for what I have received, I think is my responsibility. And I, I, I greatly, I, I deeply believe in that. Let's go back into your career. Let's talk about where you are now and your role and what you're doing and how you're doing it and who you're doing it with and how you're feeling about it. If I didn't work here, I'd be trying to work here because it's the best, because we are the best. Let's give you your formal position. Shout out your actual title of this so people can hear it. Managing Director of the UK and Head of International A&R at Warner Chapel, the best. You've been here, so you say, since 21. You've made that adjustment. I started the role October 20, um, and I didn't move here 
till January of 21. And how's it been for you? I mean, how I mean, how have you made that adjustment into the UK? And what do you think of the UK market and its artists? I mean, listen, like I, a lot of people in America were questioning my decision. Like, oh, are you sure you want to do that? Um, and even moments that I questioned it. But one of the things that I remember, like I was talking to my boss, Guy, who is English, now, you know, is um, co-chair of Warner Chapel globally. Yeah and um, living in LA. And then I thought about uh, Rob Stringer and Lucy Grange and Max Lusada and all of these English people that are running the American music market. And I was like, what the fuck are they teaching them there that we're not learning here? So to me, being here was like necessary. And I'm so lucky that I have this opportunity to learn the business from a a global perspective, which is where it's heading. So I feel like I have got like the head start in the relay race. I don't know. The role evolves every day. It evolves as I keep learning more and keep getting stuck into other sides. I'm lucky. Listen, I am not a one man show. I have the most insane team here. Um, Kate Alderton, who is like head of operations and basically the side of my brain that works I stand next to her so I look smart. And then I have Darren Young, who is like our head of business affairs. Another person I stand next to to look smart. Amber, obviously, you know, and I can't say enough about her and her pedigree. And I just have a group of people that I get to stand next to and look really fucking smart. I stand very close to them. It's an adventure and I I love it. I'm comfortably uncomfortable and comfortable and I'm learning a lot and... I'm here as long as you guys will allow me to be here. So listen, you've been more than generous with your time, but there's a couple of things I really want to ask before we head out. Looking back, I'm going to say your your career has been incredible. You're an inspiration. You're a role model. Regardless of what you may think, I mean, when people look at you and see where you are, see what you're doing and who you are and where you're at right now, that really is the case. If you walked into, into a room and there was that one young woman who came up to you and said, I want to do this. What was the one piece of advice you'd give her? I, I don't know if this is advice, but it's always the thing that plays in my head. Do you want them to yell at you or do you want me to yell at you? And just kind of, because for me, what that really meant was I was far more quiet. I was far more like uncomfortable in my own skin. And that thing that Chris said to me was the moment where I learned like, no, like have a voice, speak up, let people know you're there and what you're there to do. And so maybe that's the advice I would give. Are you comfortable in the chair? Are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you happy in being who you are and where you're at right now? Um, that changes minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, month by month. Um, I'm happy. I, listen, I, I, I still can't believe somebody pays me to do this job. Like how many people, how many of your friends get to work in their plan A? How many of your friends, and I, I mean, I say this because I have a bunch of friends and we, when we were all growing up, everyone had like, you know, their dream, like I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And many of them are not doing the things that they set out to do because life be life in, right? And things happen and you don't always get to do, but here I am getting to do exactly what I want to do and getting to do it with an an amazing group of people in a different country 
and being a black woman to be impactful in this particular role um, and kind of getting being able to sort of create the company and the culture of your dreams with people who believe in you and who are like going, no, fuck, do it. Yes. Great. Go for it. I'm grateful. Like I talk to artists and creative people as my job. Shani Gonzalez, managing director of Warner Chapel Music. I cannot tell you how much fun it's been to talk to you. I cannot tell you how much I've learned from you. But I also don't think you realise how much of a legacy and how much energy and what you're going to leave behind you by people seeing you in that chair. So all I can say to you is bless you for joining us on the podcast. You just keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks for joining us on the Did You Know podcast. Thank you so much. I'm Adrian Sykes, and thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Shani for sharing her stories, and also to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, to our producer, Cass Denton, to Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. Big thanks as ever to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Please check out the show's website, www.didyouknowpodcast.com, all one word, for all the information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Look out for our next episode, where I'll be talking with Travis Beckford, artist manager and founder of The Future Is, about his career to date. I feel like the, the industry, or the music business, I should say, it chose me. It wasn't something that I necessarily went out looking for. I came from quite a negative background to get into where I am today. And if it wasn't for the experiences that I had growing up, I would have never gone and landed in the position I'm in now and being, you know, one of the young people that are, you know, championing the UK music scene. This was Did You Know? Until the next time.